0: Hello, this is Titan Tenebo in the episode, Now or Never. In this episode, I want to tell you the very dramatic story of Israel's declaration of independence. Actually, I'm surprised no one has ever made a movie about this. And uh, perhaps one of you listeners out there uh, decide to actually take this up. In any case, it was the 12th of May, 1948. 10 people were gathered in a room in Tel Aviv, about to make a very fateful decision for the entire Jewish community living in Palestine. This group of people, was called Minhelet Ha'am, which basically was a pre-state government cabinet. There was supposed to be 13 of them, but three of them were missing. Two were in Jerusalem, actually could not get out of Jerusalem because there was already a siege around Jerusalem by an Arab army that was there. And one of them was actually in the United States. So these 10 people got together and argued for over 12 hours of what they should do. Should they go ahead and declare a Jewish state later on to be called Israel? Or should they just wait? Now, the reason this was so fateful was because the Arabs made it very clear that if the Jews would declare their own independent state, there would be an Arab invasion from the surrounding countries that would put an end to it. These people were considering the fact that this was only three years after World War II and three years after the Holocaust, where six million Jews were murdered by the Nazis and their collaborators. Can they take the responsibility of 650,000 Jews living in Palestine on their shoulders? Perhaps there could be a genocide some of the world leaders were saying that the Jews should push it off. As a matter of fact, what they really wanted to do was to create like a United Nations zone of Palestine where the Jews would have some autonomy and the Arabs would have autonomy, but there really wouldn't be a state or there wouldn't be two states even. And this was the dilemma. This was the question that was asked in that room with these 10 people. This is the point where I need to give you some context. You see, as I mentioned before, the amount of Jews living in Palestine at the time was 650,000. But at the same time, there were one million Arabs living in the same Palestine. Both of those parties claimed that the land belonged to them. And both of them actually substantiated it with what they thought was, their, was the correct facts. So for instance, the Jews had said, look, there was a, lord, a British lord named Lord Balfour that made a promise to us, the Jews, that we would be able to have our own homeland in the area of Palestine. The Arabs were citing uh, letters that were exchanged between the British ambassador to Egypt, whose name was McMahon and Hussein, who was the sheriff of Mecca, that basically promised the Arabs an Arab state in the area of the Middle East, somewhere between the Persian Gulf and the Mediterranean Sea. The truth of the matter was that the British had actually made three different promises to three different people about the same land, and this was before or actually during World War I. The British, who wanted to oust the Ottoman Empire from their hold over the Middle East, and essentially they were actually successful at it, promised the French, in an agreement that was called the Sykes-Picot Agreement, these were two diplomats, one British, one French, that on behalf of their governments agreed that after they conquer the Middle East, they will have regions of influence over uh, the entire Middle East. At the same time, they exchanged letters, as the Arabs claim correctly, with the Sheriff of Mecca, that this area of the Middle East, again, between the Persian Gulf and the Mediterranean Sea, would be an Arab state. And at the same time, basically around the same year, actually about 1916 and 1917, the Balfour Declaration promised the Jews that they would have their own homeland. After World One was over, in 1918, all three um, parties wanted to cash in on the British promise. The French, who were obviously the strongest, and the British, divided up the Middle East into regions of influence. The Arabs, who wanted one large pan-Arab state with having a caliph, you know, the head of the Muslim world, would not receive the promise made by the British and therefore would be compensated. As a matter of fact, Hussein ibn Ali, the sheriff of Mecca, had three sons, the oldest of which was Ibn Ali. And Ali basically remained king of what Hussein was, which was Mecca, which is obviously Saudi Arabia. The second son, whose name was Abdullah, was partitioned an area that was first called Transjordan, and then became into the country called Jordan, and his reign is still there because the current Abdullah, the king of Jordan, is actually the great-grandson of this first Abdullah. And then Faisal, who was a third son of Ibn Ali, the sheriff of Mecca, was granted an area called Iraq. He wanted Syria, but uh, the French held on to Syria, and later on, he also gets part of Syria. Incidentally, Ali, the king of Saudi Arabia, was deposed by the Saud family, and uh, Faisal of Iraq and Greater Syria was also de- also deposed. And the Abdallah family still rules in Jordan until this very day. The Jews and Arabs of Palestine took up issue with the British. Neither received independence or even an autonomy after World War II. That the British had totally changed their world policy to just leave their areas of influence. As a matter of fact, in areas called India and Pakistan, areas of Africa and of course the Middle East. The United Nations had taken upon itself the issue of the Middle East, and more specifically the issue of Palestine, and decided to try to solve the uh, issue between the Jew and Arab where both can have their own independent states. For this purpose, they sent a committee to Israel or to Palestine called the United Nations Special Committee on Palestine. This committee came up with an idea of what's called partition. Partition would take the area between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea and divided into two states, a Jewish state and an Arab state. If you look at a map, you will see that actually it wasn't two areas, but rather six areas, three of which would be the Jewish state, three of which would be the Arab state. Cities like Jerusalem and Bethlehem, which were very important to the world and religiously and otherwise, would actually be neutral and somehow at one point be international, although that never came about. The Arab world, which saw itself as representing the Palestinians, uh, totally rejected the plan. To them, the Jews do not belong in the Middle East. To them, the Jews were a religion. To them, the Jews uh, just uh, should not have their own state in that region. The Jewish world also opposed the plan, thinking there are many Arab states, there's no Jewish state, this is the historical Jewish homeland, and therefore it should all be ours. Um, However, the Jews also realized, um, especially since they lived as a minority for so many years, that uh, compromise will lead to some success, whereas standing around and completely rejecting the plan may lead to nothing. And therefore, the Arab world rejected the plan. The Jewish world actually accepted the plan. And this went to vote in the United Nations on the 29th of November, 1947. During that time, or in that vote, um, 33 countries voted for the partition plan, 13 countries voted against it, and 10 abstained. With that, the resolution of the partition passed. The British were given a year to leave. In other words, they were supposed to leave on November of 1948. Now, the British could not wait to get out. And therefore, they actually decided to leave six months earlier. And that was in May of 48. So now that you have some of the context, let's go back to those 10 leaders of the Jewish community of Palestine in that room in Tel Aviv only two days before the British are slated to leave. The argument in the room was very passionate. David Ben-Gurion, which later became the first Prime Minister of Israel, was very adamant that it is now or never. He basically said, look, Zionism, the idea of the return of the Jews to their homeland, is something that we've been talking about, hoping for, yearning for, for basically 2,000 years. The world has always said no to us. Now the world finally has said yes. And Ben-Gurion said, what, now the world is saying yes and we should be the ones saying no? That's crazy. Others were saying, yeah, but you can't take the risk. If we lose a war, there will be a genocide. Sometime during that conversation, another man walks in. His name was Igal Yadin, a young man who actually was in the role of like a military general, even though there wasn't yet an Israeli defense Forces. In other words, there wasn't yet an army. There were only underground military movements. And the reason for that is because when the British were there, they wouldn't allow for an army. Igal Yadin was asked, if we go ahead and declare independence... And the Arab world indeed invades as they promise they will. Will we survive this thing? Will we be victorious? So he starts giving them all these numbers. The Egyptian army, which is by far the largest and strongest Arab army, has this many tanks and this many artillery and has these many airplanes. The Jordanians have these many foot soldiers. The Lebanese, the Iraqis, and all these other Arab countries. And they basically cut him off and they say, listen, Igal, we don't have all day. We actually have only about 48 hours before the British are leaving. So, bottom line, will we survive this thing? Igal Yadin looks at them and without batting an eye, says 50-50. In other words, 50% chance of yes surviving, 50% chance of maybe, perhaps, total destruction. With that, they vote. Now, the tension in the room is very, very thick. They say you can almost cut the tension with a knife. And it appears that David Ben-Gurion, once again, the leader of the 10 uh, uh, leaders of the Jewish community, basically applied so much pressure on several of them that at the end when they vote, six people voted for and four people voted against. If you think about it, with a majority of only one person that decide to go ahead And declare the independence of a Jewish state. The decision to establish a Jewish state had two immediate issues that needed to be dealt with right away. One of them of course was the possible all-out war that would be with the Arab world and that was uh, something that was given to the Israeli underground movements which soon to be known as the Israeli Defense Forces to deal with on a military level. The other was actually no less important and that was recognition worldwide. In order to exist in this world, they needed to have world recognition, and specifically the recognition of superpowers like the United States. As a matter of fact, Israel, or what was to become Israel, was courted in the United States for months earlier. In March of 1948, Chaim Weizmann, which was the head of the Jewish Agency at the time, and later on to be the first president of Israel, arrived in the U.S. for a meeting with President Truman. Much to his disappointment, Weizmann learned that Truman canceled the meeting. The reason Truman canceled the meeting was because he was irritated with so much pressure by the Zionist movement and by the Jewish leadership in America that they were putting on him. Uh, He just really didn't want to deal with Palestine. And Weitzman really had no idea what to do until the realization came that Truman had a close friend from Kansas City, which he actually was in business with for a couple of years in the men's haberdasher business, whose name was Eddie Jacobson. Eddie Jacobson was asked to meet with Truman and to convince him to meet with Weizmann. First he was reluctant, but then he was convinced and showed up at the White House a couple weeks later speaking to President Truman in his office about the possibility of meeting with Weizmann. He convinced Truman and Truman did meet with Weizmann to hear him out and to decide whether the United States would support the idea of a Jewish state. After meeting with the President, Weizmann leaves with a really good feeling that indeed the United States will support the idea of the future state of Israel. But things were about to get a lot more difficult, especially for President Truman. You see, George Marshall, who was the Secretary of State, of course, former General George Marshall, a very popular general and politician, was very adamantly against the idea of the creation of a Jewish state in the Middle East, for many reasons. I'm not gonna cite all the reasons now, but what I would like you to know is that uh, there was a confrontation And President Truman decided that he would invite Marshall to the White House together with others, as well as his domestic uh, advisor, whose name is Clark Clifford. And Truman decided that after Marshall states all the reasons why the United States should not support the idea of a Jewish state, that he would then turn to Clark Clifford and ask him to give all the reasons why the United States should support the idea of a Jewish state. After Marshall spoke, Clifford starts speaking. Clifford... Once again, the domestic advisor of President Truman says that as he's speaking, he's looking at Marshall and he sees that Marshall is turning red with anger. So much so that at one point, when when Clifford ends his talk, Marshall just explodes to the point where he says to the president, if all you're looking for is influence domestically of a Jewish vote, you are making the wrong decision. And not only that, but if you decide to go through with this, Marshall apparently says, I will not be able to vote for you in the next elections. By the way, Marshall recorded this, as well as the fact that he said to the president he would not vote for him in the next elections, in the Secretary of State logbook when he returned to the State Department. After Marshall's blunt and threatening remarks, Truman just said, you know, I tend to side with you on this, and he actually dismisses the meeting. Back in Tel Aviv, arrangements were being made for the ceremony of the establishment of Israel. Now you'd think that the ceremony would be held in Jerusalem, since Jerusalem would be the capital of this new Jewish state. But because Jerusalem was under siege by a local Arab army, the ceremony had to be held in Tel Aviv. The site that was chosen was the former house of the first mayor of Tel Aviv, whose name was Dizingoff, that had been converted to the art museum and had a large enough hall for 300 people that were invited to the ceremony, as well as an orchestra that would play Hatikva, which would be the national anthem of the new state. The organizers were running around trying to make last-minute uh, arrangements for this historical ceremony. As a matter of fact, imagine to yourself that you're an event planner and you have exactly two days, even less than two days, to be able to organize a historic, dramatic event of the establishment of a country. First, they had to keep the ceremony uh, a secret so that uh, enemies would not sabotage it. Uh, Also, they had to make sure that all the right equipment was there and uh, when they walked into the hall itself, they realized that two microphones that were there were just not amplified enough. So they ran around the city looking for a third microphone, finally finding a store. The owner was only too happy to give them a microphone. Of course, he did not forget to leave the logo of his store on the microphone, which until this very day is still in Tel Aviv. Another issue to deal with was that the British were not leaving until midnight on the 14th of May. Now, midnight the 14th of May was actually a Friday night, which is the Jewish Sabbath. The Jewish Sabbath comes in on Friday at sundown. And it did not make sense to create, to declare a Jewish state on the Sabbath when large parts of the population who were observant would not actually be able to even hear this on the radio. So, they decided to do is to declare the ceremony at 3.30, or actually at 4 o'clock in the afternoon on that same Friday, a few hours before the British were leaving, to come into being at midnight when the British leave. At 3.30 in the afternoon, 300 people were gathered together in the Hall of Independence. What was then missing was Ben-Gurion that would come around 4 o'clock, a little after 4 o'clock, and the scroll of Independence itself. Zev Sharf, Ben-Gurion's right-hand man, had the scroll with him, but he was also in charge of getting all the people into the hall itself for the ceremony, hailing them down taxis, sending them along in taxis. When he finally sent the last people, he realized that he himself did not have a taxi and there was no one in sight. So, he ends up running around and finding a man. He stops a car, basically, and says, hey, will you give me a ride? This man was at first reluctant, but then took him. They're speeding along, and the policeman pulls them over. So, they explain to the policeman where they're going. They show him the scroll of independence, and the policeman lets him continue on their way. They arrive at the hall, again, the Tel Aviv Art Museum, formerly Dizengoff's house, what is to be called from now on the Hall of Independence, at about 3.59. Six minutes later, at 4.05, David Ben-Gurion, who would be the first Prime Minister of Israel, walks in, opens up the scroll, and starts to read from it. Now understand, the Scroll of Independence was the most important document that this new state would come up with. And in this document, many things were discussed and many things were written down, of course, signed. And of course, naturally, there were many, many arguments over what it should say. For instance, and I'll give you one example, there was an argument over whether God's name should be in the scroll. Now, the observant religious Jews said, of course, God's name should be in the scroll because it's written in the Bible, in the Tanakh, in the Torah, even borders are specified. That's the reason we're here to begin with. The non-religious, as a matter of fact, secular Jews who were somewhat anti-religious said, over our dead body. Now, God's name cannot be in it because we the Jews are no longer really a religion. We're a nationality. This whole uh, uh, issue of Judaism being a religion, a nationality, a culture, we will discuss in a different episode. What's interesting is, is that they disagreed, and they were bo- both groups are very stubborn. So they compromised. And the compromise was putting in two words. In Hebrew, it's called Tsur Israel, which basically means, for the secular Jews, the rock of Israel, or the strength of Israel. And for the religious Jews, it meant God of Israel, the God of Israel. Now, what's interesting about this is it was a compromise, but this is just one issue of many, many issues that had to be discussed before the Scroll of Independence was actually signed and uh, ratified. As Ben-Gurion read from the Scroll of Independence, there were thousands of people outside of the building waiting to celebrate the establishment of the new state. Perhaps the most important part of the scroll that Ben-Gurion read is something that I'd like to read to you real quick, and it says this. By virtue of our natural and historical right, and on the strength of the resolution of the United Nations General Assembly, we hereby declare the establishment of, now this is the most important part. See, most people think that what we establish is the state of Israel, but Israel was just a name. And as a matter of fact, there were three names considered for the new state. Israel, which was chosen, Zion, or the ancient name of Jerusalem, in the idea of Zionism, and perhaps Judea. Judea, which was the name of the last tribe of the people of Israel. And once again, Israel was chosen, but Israel was just a name. The idea of the establishment was of a Jewish state, and that is the most important part. And therefore, it bigger in red, we hereby declare the establishment of a Jewish state in the land of Israel to be known as the state of Israel. World recognition came quick. At first, it was the American delegate to the UN, whose name was Jessup. The United States recognized the establishment of the new Jewish state. Shortly after, Iran came to the podium, and Iran recognized the establishment of Israel, and so did the Soviet Union and many other other nations. And Tel Aviv people were dancing and singing in the streets. The leadership wasn't so jubilant because of the fact that they realized that as soon as the British leave, or perhaps a few hours later, the Arab world would invade Israel en masse. And this would be the greatest challenge to the survival of the brand new state. Now that I've told you about the drama of the declaration of the State of Israel, I'd like to raise a question. A question that is actually still asked today, I think, by many people and by Israeli society at large. The question is, what in the world does it mean to declare a Jewish state? What in the world does it mean to have a Jewish state? Now, does that mean that a Jewish state should be a religious state? Does that mean it should be religiously observant? Does that mean that on the Sabbath, There should not be public transportation, there should not be people working at all. Does that mean that uh, everybody has to keep kosher and many other observant laws? That's a question. There is a population in Israel that probably believes that. Or does it mean that uh, a Jewish state should be somewhat socialistic? As a matter of fact, when Israel was established and before Israel was established, there was the Kibbutz movement, which believed in total socialism, atheism, and should that be the Jewish state? Should the Jewish state be based on culture? rich Jewish culture of the last thousands of years? Or should the Jewish state perhaps be based on nationalism? In other words, Judaism and the people of Israel existed for hundreds of years before Judaism became a religion, and perhaps it's the peoplehood part that should be emphasized in the idea of the Jewish state. By the way, what about the non-Jews living in this state? What about 20% of the state of Israel that is actually Arab, most of which are Muslims and some of which are Christians. How can they identify themselves with the idea of a Jewish state? All these questions are still being asked today. All these questions are being dealt with. And what's interesting is that Israel is crystallizing with all those different diverse opinions, uh, cultures, religions, as a phenomena of a democracy with many unresolved issues.